Welcome to Twill, the week in health law, the podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. Recording this episode on November 9th, 2018. Today, I'm joined by Professor Wendy Mariner. Professor Mariner is the Edward R. Utley Professor of Health Law at Boston University School of Public Health, Professor of Law at Boston University School of Law, Professor at Boston University School of Medicine, and co-director of the JDMPH Joint Degree Program, a member of the faculty of the Center for Law, Ethics, and Human Rights at the Public Health School. Uh, as most of you know, she's been on the pod many times. Her research focuses on all aspects of health law, uh, particularly health risks, uh, health insurance systems, the ACA, and she absolutely loves Arissa. A huge welcome back to the pod. Thank you so much for having me. It's a great pleasure to be with you, Nick. As we speak, it is two days after the midterm elections. And the day after, I decided to reserve a little time in my Intro to Health Law and Policy class and sort of discuss some of the things that had uh, occurred health-wise uh, at the election. And I ended up with 10 what I thought were reasonably interesting uh, observations, uh, which are now up on Bill of Health. But I thought it might be fun to try and uh, do the director's cut and expand on some of them or even reduce some of them for, for time. I think it's an excellent idea. We may end up with an expanded three-hour version of the director's cut. But I want to start by saying I think it's a very nice list, and I'm very glad that you wrote it up and let everyone take a peek at it. The consensus winner was Medicaid. Uh, ballot measures expanding uh, Medicaid uh, prevailed in Idaho, Nebraska, and Utah. And there were other sort of Medicaid influence or Medicaid expansion influencing plays as well. Uh, Maine finally got itself a, a Democratic governor who had run on a promise to actually enact the previous ballot, which had approved it, but the Governor DePage had, had blocked. We also have a new governor in Kansas who's a Democrat um, who seems in favor of expansion, though it's a little unclear whether her legislature is in favor of expansion. Not so good in Montana, which had already approved expansion, but the, the approval had had a, a financial precondition. And so this was where, how they could fund it. And it was, uh, they tried to do it with the new tobacco tax, but of course, big tobacco moved in a truckload of money and uh, uh, that went down. By the way, Utah paid for the expansion, you know, the 10%, now that we're post uh, the ACA uh, roll-in period, Utah expanded, uh, financed that with a sales tax increase. I guess the only other state that really caught my eye was Wisconsin with the defeat of Governor Walker, who, uh, if you recall, had actually become something of a health a convert uh, during the run-up to the election, but obviously that was not sufficient. They have in Wisconsin a non-expansion waiver that has work requirements, um, skin in the game kind of things. Well, now they have a Democratic governor. It'd be interesting to see if they go back on that. So in conclusion, by my math, we probably added 300 to 400,000 new persons to the roles of insured after all of this activity 
and we now have 37 states, uh, including D.C., who have expanded. If you throw in Kansas and Wisconsin for grins, that leaves me, I think, with 12 holdouts. And if you toss out Wyoming, you're looking at the Deep South and Texas and dramatically poor states. Well, that's consistent with what's looking like an urban-rural divide in much of the rest of the country. But I think the, I think you are absolutely right to put the Medicaid expansion as the first and possibly the most important specific health law point post-election. It's certainly the point that has received at least the most attention in my informal, non-scientific surveys. It can lead to further entrenchment in the population's expectation that there be some form of coverage for, for their health care, uh, regardless of what party's in power. The other thing that we've learned, I think, and um, you good folks in public health have been the ones digging this stuff out, is that uh, the more that persons are brought out of the background, are given health, you know, are given job training, are allowed to vote again, and so on, those themselves are positive health determinants. Well, I'm very glad you mentioned that because I was just doing a little presentation on the sort of future of health law in the country and linking most areas of health law to the social determinants of health, I think makes absolute sense because that's what indeed we need to be working on. But at a more fundamental level, the social determinants of law begin with voting. And that's, I think, where we might be making some progress if we look at Florida and the opening uh, voting rights again to felons who have been convicted of crime and now have served their sentence and released opens voting to um, an enormous number of people in the state of Florida, many of whom, perhaps a third, are people of color who have been the subject of voter suppression, even among populations that are not institutionalized. So that's a major step. If we are able to allow people to vote, um, then we may see even further changes in the particular laws in the state's across the United States that um, even in some parts of the Deep South. That could bring us to um, a second point in the list of issues post-midterm elections and bouncing off the um, Medicaid expansion, stepping back and looking at the Affordable Care Act itself. As you point out, it continues its miraculous survival. Um, not to say that there won't be more attacks um, in the future, but since the Democrats now hold the House or will hold the House majority in January, certainly a full repeal won't be possible. Now, there are still efforts, as you point out, Texas against the U.S. and suits attempting to undercut the core of the Affordable Care Act so as to make it, in a sense, ineffective and not not feasible. That, I think, is that case is problematic, but we've we've seen problematic cases win before. Mm-hmm. Perhaps the, the bigger worry at the moment and where we are focusing attention is the administrative agency efforts to do by regulation what Congress has not done by statute. And you see that with uh, the 1332 waivers for marketplace plans, and obviously with the Medicaid 1115 waivers under Medicaid to impose work requirements, extra special uh, cost sharing, penalties, administrative um, obstacles, and the like. So I think we'll see a lot of action around ACA provisions 
One thing that struck me during the um, this, the campaign for the midterm was a seeming growing consensus that everyone should be covered for pre-existing conditions, yes. even among those who were hoping to repeal the ACA and eliminate that as a necessary uh, coverage requirement for both private and even Medicaid public assistance. So it's it's a it's a striking shift in public attitudes. Now, that's not to suggest that there isn't, in fact, opposition to coverage of pre-existing conditions by some politicians who claimed to be for it, but actually argued against coverage. Congress was going to perhaps try and provide some kind of coverage for pre-existing conditions, or rather people with pre-existing conditions, but that did not necessarily require coverage of the pre-existing condition mm-hmm. at issue. This is where, unfortunately, a lot of health lawyers have to get deep into the weeds in order to see what's going on. So what do you think the Democrats, I mean, they're going to, you know, starting with sort of Richard Neal, who'll be taking over probably Ways and Means. You've got Pallone, who's big on Medicaid, uh, Elijah Cummings on drug costs, Rosa DeLauro, Think Planned Parenthood, Lloyd Doggett, drug prices. Those are the names that are being thrown around in the newspaper as far as committee chairs or subcommittee chairs. What do you think they will actually do um, other than block, you know, repeal and replace? Do you think they will sort of take a page out of the GOP playbook and sort of continually put forward bills that take a pro pre-existing condition prohibition approach just so they can sort of count and publicize the no votes? Or do you think people are fed up with that kind of tactic? That's an excellent question. My sense is they would be very wise to build on the, a positive movement yep. and, and do something that indicates that they are in fact looking to help people uh, rather than just score points. For example, trying to work on something about drug prices, looking about negotiation with drug companies under Medicare, for example, making sure that there is no uh, attempt to repeal Medicare or or defund it, but positive steps. Um, The focus on the pre-existing conditions can cut both ways. It can be seen as a positive measure to protect the population. And that's probably, it may be among the least offensive if, on the other hand, the effort is simply to prove that the Republicans are going to vote no. I would be very careful about that early on, maybe later, if you want to have opposition to uh, a particular measure registered among the voting public, that might be possible. But I think you're right. I think the voting public is fed up with the partisanship and could dismiss even the best proposals as purely political posturing, if that's done too soon. Let's turn to the states where we saw quite a lot of issues decided by proposition or similar ballot measures. Uh, I think we have to start with the abortion ballot measures. Uh, In Alabama and West Virginia, we saw strikingly conservative constitutional amendments denying abortion rights 
or any state funding for such procedures. The Alabama ballot granted fetuses full, quote, personhood rights, which I think is the first time we've seen that in this context. Oregon voters went the other way, uh, defeating Measure 106, which would have prohibited publicly funded healthcare programs from covering abortion, which of course is something obviously that uh, Oregon's um, progressive healthcare system does. And I guess the other piece we need to throw into this is that with the Republicans' increased majority in the Senate, that probably reduces the influence of what have been viewed as two swing Republicans, Lisa McCuskey and Susan Collins, which probably, which would probably lead to um, more judges willing to overturn Rowan Wade being able to get a pass um, through judiciary and through the Senate. So I guess first question for you is why constitutional amendments in Alabama and West Virginia? What's is, is this just another way of saying the same thing or is there some sort of deeper purpose behind going for the constitutional amendment? Uh, and what do you think of the full personhood right protection in Alabama? Well, that's an interesting question. I, I would not presume to know the motivations of the voters in Alabama or West Virginia, not, not living there. But the notion of personhood obviously attacks the original Roe versus Wade conception that the majority of the Supreme Court found that their a fetus was not a person within the meaning of the U.S. Constitution and certainly the 14th Amendment. So perhaps they are looking for a way that they can use their own constitution in much the same way, for example, that Massachusetts found an obligation for the state to provide public funding for Medicaid-covered abortions in the state, even though it was not obligated to do so under the federal Medicaid requirements. So perhaps they are saying, well, it may not be under the federal government, but we can provide additional rights under our state constitution. The problem with that, of course, is that it interferes with the woman's right under the federal constitution. The point about the Senate's role in approving judgeships in the federal judiciary is now critical. You now have Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski, who um, really don't matter anymore when it comes to confirming judges with the number of senators that the GOP controls in the Senate. Uh, and I think that's a, a major question, not simply for the the cases that have to do with reproductive rights, which I do believe is key, but also uh, the federal judiciary judges that may, in fact, uh, have very conservative views about the role of administrative agencies and what they can do. Uh, now, that could cut both ways for the federal government, which is in the realm of abortion and contraception, attempted to create special exemptions for employers to refuse coverage of, of certain contraceptives on the basis of their religious beliefs. And you'll recall HHS's proposals for, for the exemption for um, ACA coverage of the preventive services of contraception on the basis of religious beliefs and the separate regulation on the basis of moral convictions. So in some ways, perhaps judges who may favor an older, narrower view of the delegation doctrine and that would not allow administrative agencies to interpret their powers so broadly might cut back on those kinds of proposals. On the other hand, they could constrain a great deal of activity in uh, other agencies, but also HHS, in connection with the kind of coverage decisions that are made under Medicare and Medicare and their guidelines, um, that sort of thing. So I think that's a, 
it's a the Senate GOP control of the Senate and its ability to approve or disapprove judges will have wide ranging effects. In my dear home state, we had only three ballot initiatives uh, on the ballot this year. Uh, one was a disapproval of an, uh, a proposed repeal of the state's law that protects transgender people from discrimination. The voters overwhelmingly rejected an attempt to repeal that protection against uh, discrimination. And it, we also had a more technical and interestingly very hard-fought ballot proposal brought by the Nurses Association to propose drafting a law that would prescribe um, nurse staffing ratios in hospitals. And this was first quite popular, and then the hospitals and others created a very strong opposition, and it ultimately lost fairly resoundingly, probably because of uh, two concerns. One is, do you really want to write staffing requirements into a statute? That seems a bit um, rigid and not necessarily responsive. There were a number of people who were frightened that a nurse couldn't be allowed to take care of someone in an emergency if there were already the maximum number of patients in, for example, in an emergency department. That seemed a little far-fetched to my mind, but you know there was concern that this is not the way to prove quality. California had tried it. It has mixed results, so it wasn't as helpful in, in, in providing evidence for people in Massachusetts as one might have hoped. So the first of those points you made about the um, non-discrimination provision, that of course uh, has particular salience given the sort of limbo that the ACA's Section 1557 rules are in uh, under a nationwide injunction that no one still really understands why there was a nationwide injunction. And we're awaiting a revised rule. And all the indications are that the administration's revised rule is going to take a strict birth gender approach. And I think a, a Commonwealth Fund report that came out yesterday said that that would in danger approximately 1.7 million trans people in our country who will face significant hardship uh, that increases their risk of poor health outcomes. So again, this the savage cultural war that doesn't seem to take into account the body count other than as sort of a a way of, of, of running up the score. Well, that's, that's a very good point. And in fact, um, my colleagues here, Julie Rafeman and Michael Ulrich, have looked at the evidence for mental health stress and physical repercussions from stress among people who live in states where there is no protection for discrimination, not simply transgender, but LGBTQ+. And these are people who exhibit this kind of stress and psychological damage, even if they haven't been themselves directly discriminated against. So simply living in a culture in which the law says you are not protected can be severely damaging to people's health. Presumably uh, over in California, the uh, the home of the resistance, uh, there's less chance of that uh, happening. Uh, and California has a new Democratic governor uh, and a Democratic uh, legislature. And the governor ran on a promise to overhaul the healthcare system. I don't think there was too much um, specificity as to what he was doing, whether it was going to go over to a, a single payer type of system um, and, you know, try and do what we thought Vermont might do a few 
years ago. There was a sniff of Colorado trying to do it uh, an election or so ago. Uh, but post-election, there seems to be uh, a tamping down of expectations in the sense that this will be approached as uh, on a sort of a piecemeal basis. And I wonder what that would look like. I guess you keep on traveling down the 1332 road, do you? Slowly sort of breaking the barriers of segmentation that exist in different types of access to care and slowly sort of, you know, if you like, gluing them together into at least what appears to the patient, the consumer, as a single healthcare system, even though, you know, the hamsters behind the curtain may be running really far across a, a bunch of different payment models or something like that. Have you seen any other sort of proposals that are that are more radical than that? I've, I've not seen terribly radical. Of course, the, the system in place in, in Maryland has more to do with the financing side and is perhaps a, a more successful use of, yes, a bit of rate setting um, to try and get a hold of the costs of the system. But a little more of what you are talking about, that whatever happens behind the curtain is not doesn't need to affect uh, a smooth functioning of the delivery system on this side of the curtain. There have been a number of efforts, and we've done it in Massachusetts and I think several other states, to simply try and use uh, health plans that accept both ACA marketplace patients, mm -hmm. regular private marketplace patients, and Medicaid patients so that they needn't be shifted from one system to another when they happen to churn from eligibility for Medicaid to eligibility for ACA. And that, I think, is, is simply positive because at that point, you can begin to shift the, the streams, the financial streams of funding with a little more flexibility if you don't have to disrupt the actual delivery system. Yeah, one of the things I always do in class when I'm teaching the exchanges and Medicaid is I look at sort of the California website and I look at the Indiana website and how when you've got a state-run exchange, you can have a sort of a single entry point. You know, I'm, I'm looking for healthcare in my state and you go to one place and then behind the scenes, it directs you off to whether you're going to um, Medicaid, Medicaid expansion or to the exchanges where um, in a state that doesn't have its own exchange like Indiana, um, you kind of get a brutal turndown from Medicaid and you're just told, go over to this other place. Whereas if you can sort of cut those barriers, um, uh, sort of visible barriers down. And I think you're right. If you can, if you can control the financing like that, and I think, you know, we've seen success that may not be terribly scalable in using payers of last resort. So something like the Ryan White financing, which can sit at the bottom of all the different financing models and sort of fill in the gaps after they've been exhausted. If you can do that and you can leverage the potential for sort of a combined Medicaid uh, chip exchange website and so on, add in some Maryland provider cost control 
put in the Massachusetts 1115 that was turned down for a Medicaid formulary. You know, someone's going to succeed in getting all of those Lego blocks together and building something, right? I, I think so. It, it just takes far too much time in this country to do it piecemeal. But we are right. You are going to do it piecemeal. And some of those Legos are going to get knocked off, and then they'll be put back on with a couple more extra uh, in, in the way we tend to build things here. I did see uh, one other uh, piece from California, Proposition 2 in California, that passed very easily. Uh, going back to my prior... Uh, uh, comment about um, social determinants, Wendy. Proposition 2 creates housing for homeless people with severe mental illness, uh, allows the state to divert $2 billion in existing county mental health funds to finance bonds for housing. That's the kind of thing we should be doing. Well, I couldn't agree more. And I think you'll find that uh, once someone has housing, um, it's easier for them to maintain their health coverage. It's also possible for them to actually get a job and also register to vote because they have an address, all kinds of things that begin to happen in a positive manner once you can get people into housing. To change the subject a bit, one of the uh, points that you made, which I think is a, a growing issue across the country, so to speak, um, is marijuana and the in increasing legalization at the state level of medical marijuana and indeed recreational marijuana, which has provided jobs for many um, attorneys to try and both write and then comply with uh, regulations for creating dispensaries, um, looking at growing facilities, having um, supervision, figuring out how to finance them without banking, and figuring out a relationship with um, the federal government, which will ultimately bring us back to our relationship with the Attorney General, I suspect. But here again, we have a, a, an, a situation in which the states are, as uh, Sandra Day O'Connor will, will uh, always confirm, act as the laboratories of democracy and and move far ahead of the Congress. I, I don't know whether the Congress is yet ready to take marijuana off Schedule 1 list. I wonder what you think. One, I'm a little suspicious of the motives of some states, because to me, it sometimes looks more like a tax grab. Secondly, and I need your help here, I'm still not entirely sure what the current state of the public health literature is on this. There are clear linkages with smoking tobacco and as we saw again from more CDC numbers this week, we are making extraordinary progress in in dealing with the smoking problem in this country. The, the percentage is going down. I still think there are like 40 million people smoking, uh, but the progress we've made in the last 20 years is, is remarkable. And so I, I wonder just how the marijuana uh, legalization fits into those kinds of issues. Well, that's, a, that's a good question. Um, I don't see much in the literature that can confirms marijuana as a gateway drug to heroin or cocaine or something like that. There is legitimate concern, I, I believe, in the literature about the effects of marijuana on, on children and youth and the effects on their developing brain, which is, um, I think, a legitimate concern. But of course, it is and should be treated in the same way that tobacco and alcohol have been treated, which would be prohibiting sales to um, people at least under 18. The repercussions of marijuana uh, are kind of interesting because if you speak with physicians, and particularly those in emergency departments, they will tell you they see terrible injuries from alcohol-related violence and car crashes, fights in 
bars, all alcohol, you know, un- with people under the influence of alcohol, they don't see that with marijuana. Nobody comes in beaten up because they've been smoking marijuana. So I think we have to focus our attention on what's, you know, wh- who are we protecting? We want to protect children's developing brains. But I'm sure there'll be efforts to try and limit it. And well, this is a broader discussion, but people will find ways to get high. Each one that's taken away will find another one. There's something about human beings that seeks that some kind of high. And the question is whether it's worth it in terms either of personal health or population repercussions. Well, the other public health uh, issue that's sort of looming uh, with regard to uh, marijuana legalization, other than sort of, you know, states that are soon going to find themselves surrounded by legalization states and their sort of holdouts. And I think Indiana might well prove to be uh, to be one of those animals. But the other thing that really interests me is um, uh, frequently we see discussion of legalization as a way of mitigating some of the worst effects of the opioid. And, you know, to take your point, other addictions crises. And that has a couple of moving pieces to it. One, the extent to which marijuana could be a safer alternative to some prescription opioids and certainly a safer alternative to street opioids such as fentanyl. But also the whole idea of increasing decriminalization, therefore reducing the corrections population uh, and so on. And I picked up on issue one, which was on the Ohio ballot. And I learned about this because uh, I spent some uh, time with the Ohio uh, drug folks, uh, Michael Berman and others, uh, and have seen presentations on issue one up in, in, in Columbus. Um, and it really is a, it was a fascinating, albeit eventually losing proposition. Um, it went down 65 to 35, but it really divided the state. But it, it was a fascinating idea to say, let's decriminalize many drug crimes. Um, the details are, are, are quite uh, tricky. And use the, the money that we save from expenditures in, on corrections to boost drug treatment, compensation for victims of crime, and rehab programs. And I just wonder whether putting a bundle of ideas like that together, that that's going to pass some time in some state, isn't it? Oh, I think absolutely. It's certainly being discussed in in quite a few states as there's, if, if nothing else, the so-called opioid epidemic has forced states to recognize that they have no nowhere near um, the capacity for treating people with various substance use disorders. And they desperately need it. But if they look in their budget, they don't have the money for it. And yet they look in prison and see the relationship between uh, those who are incarcerated and substance use. And of course, the availability of opioids of all kinds, not prescription necessarily, in in prisons. So I think the idea is becoming more appealing, both as I find as a way to save money and as a way to get people help um, in time for them to actually make use of it and, and start fresh. But it is hard. It is hard. You can't do it with a, a week dry out session and then send people back out to their to the same, say, street life where they have no other options. Well, let's, uh, in, the, in the couple of minutes we've got left uh, before this does indeed turn into a three-hour director's cut, let's look at a couple of pieces that we, we've already begun to discuss as, uh, because all of this is so interlinked. 
first of all, while I think it's pretty clear we're going to have lots of hearings on some of the Trump administration, in quote, sabotage regulations and so on. But I wonder where there may be signs of um, some bipartisanship. Um, and the three that I put forward in the piece, and I'll, 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 I'll get you to, to give a percentage chance of, of, of anything positive coming up, were one, privacy. There does appear to be some sort of uh, coalition of those genuinely interested in improvements in privacy and tech firms who are worried that if they don't do something, they may have privacy thrust upon them. And there is this continuing concern that we have more and more health data that lives in the HIPAA-free zone. So first, my first uh, candidate for you um, in this multiple choice test uh, is privacy. Secondly, uh, you already mentioned drug prices. It's been, I think, incredibly hard to understand exactly what the Trump Azar drug pricing strategy is. But I think somewhere buried in there, there is a genuine attempt to do something about drug prices. Uh, and we know that um, uh, the Dems are pretty much interested on it. Um, against them uh, will be pharma. So, you know, I think that that loads the question. But my second offer to you then is something on drug pricing. And then something that goes perhaps more into the weeds than the prohibition on pre-existing conditions. Um, but to try and do something like the, the Alexander Murray bill almost did before it got caught up in an abortion rider and uh, then the full repeal and replace move. But the idea of doing something about uh, cost-sharing subsidies and doing something about reinsurance perhaps like we've seen great success in some of the states like uh, Minnesota. So that's my third one for you. Um, some kind of in the weeds, sort of depoliticized tinkering with the insurance parts of the um, of the exchange and well insurance generally. Well, taking the last one first and jumping off from my marijuana discussion into the weeds of Alexander Murray and similar, Ba -boom. I now think that there is a, a much larger chance for something to be done uh, now that the that the house can can no longer get the votes to ultimately destroy the ACA so they might be willing to make it function on the other hand uh, there will be those who are bound and determined to see the ACA fail one way or another and if they can make the insurance companies fail um that's a possibility. But the ACA marketplace market is such a small percentage. It's one that the, that the insurance industry really wanted, um, but it's a small percentage, so I'm not sure that it will ultimately destroy the industry. However, I preferred approach to this is reinsurance um, rather than the more complicated adjustments that have been made in the risk yeah, order debacle yep. uh, because it's just too dependent on different interpretations of the data and fights over that. If you have a reinsurance program, um, it tends to work and function far more smoothly. Now, I think I think there may be some some options for drug prices. Um, of course, the problem is that nobody has any idea what the drug price is because it depends on who's selling and who's buying. 
But there, there may be uh, some options for at least negotiating within parameters, or maybe, maybe here's a place to use corridors for negotiation. The privacy I find most interesting. Um, you sound a little more optimistic about achieving something on privacy than I am. No, I was just, um, I was just playing that on TV. <laughs> I see. <laughs> I think the best news for privacy is the pressure that comes to uh, all our multinationals who have to um, comply with the general data protection regulation. And most of these countries' uh, companies would prefer to deal with one set of rules than multiple sets of rules. Uh, on the other hand, the rules that they would prefer are not necessarily the same that much of the population in this country would prefer. So I think the there you're talking serious devil in the details. Yeah, I think that's right. I think you've got that exactly right. All right. So finally, a plurality of voters identified healthcare as the most important issue in the midterm election, if you believe those kinds of things. Certainly, it's an extraordinary turnaround from the midterms eight years ago, right? Where the ACA and provisions like um, pre-existing condition, all the rest, we use as a cudgel to beat the Democrats. This time around, the Democrats used it as a cudgel to beat the Republicans and were reasonably successful. So what does that plurality of voters identifying healthcare as the most important issue, what does that actually mean going forward? Does that mean there's a pretty strong view that we should move to a radically new healthcare system, you know, Medicare for all or whatever you might want to call it? Is it a vote for, you know, the Affordable Care Act? It's been a rough ride, but we see enough good in it now. Why don't you just leave it alone and let's see what happens over the next few years? Or is it a much narrower thing, you know, like we cherry pick pre-existing condition prohibition. We like that, but we we really don't really understand the rest of it. Well, first, I'm, I'm not actually convinced that enough voters will continue to find healthcare as the most important issue in the 2020 election. I do think, however, that we have the advantage of sort of solidifying people's expectations of coverage. And as you well know, it's much harder to um, take something away from people than not to give it to them in the first place. So to the extent that the population is uh, becoming more used to the idea that, well, yes, we should have access to care, there will probably be more receptivity to simplifying access to that care. So while I don't think, I think single payer still has a, sort of the stench of socialism <laughs> behind it, which is silly, and we all know better than that. Something that might combine expanding Medicare to younger populations mm -hmm. as a way to preserve the Medicare trust fund and extend it so you could have a financial goal, uh, which is something the Republicans have always been concerned with. They want to, they say, we can't afford Medicare. Well, and so their solution is often to privatize it or get rid of it. I think it's pretty clear that privatizing Medicare is off the table for the next two years, but it may very well be that there might be some receptivity to bringing in more people and more revenue by lowering the age range. And slowly but surely, again, behind this, behind the curtain, as you point out, uh, looking at the funding streams uh, to make things simpler in front of the curtain. Well, I guess the one most positive takeaway I have from the whole thing, and I hope you sh share this with me, is that it doesn't look I'm going to have to do a radical re-engineering of my health law syllabus this year. That's... <laughs> 
That's I'd, true. This is probably the first year that my ACA and health insurance seminar won't be dramatically changed. We will have all new regulations for them to consider, but the overall organization may actually remain roughly the same. That's the first time that's happened in 10 years. Remarkable. And that was the Week in Health Law. A big thank you to Professor Mariner for joining me. Wendy, if people want to find you, they can they can go to Twitter, can't they? Yes, they can. Where are you on Twitter? I'm at Wendy Mariner. There you are, at Wendy Mariner, at B-U-S-P-H as well. So that was so much fun having you on the show. Thank you so much. Thank um, you, Professor Terry. It's always a pleasure. Show notes will be at twirl.com. I also am at Twitter, frequently liking what Wendy says, and I am at Nicholas Terry there. Thanks for joining me and have a legally interesting but healthy week.